The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning, 9.45 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. One of the many ways, one of the many things that my wife has to put up with in living with me is that sometimes in the middle of the night, I will be like half awake, not totally sleeping, but not totally awake, but think I'm still dreaming and then begin to do some bizarre things. Does anyone else do this from time to time? Thanks a lot. It's just me by myself. Appreciate the moral support. So, for example, um, right after uh, Scarlett, our daughter, was born, I began to have this series of nightmares where I would be laying there in bed and I would be dreaming, kind of half dreaming, half awake, that I was holding Scarlett, but I'd actually be literally like scooping my arms like this in bed and bunching up the comforter in my arms and laying there holding my child and all of a sudden realize that's not my child And I would wake up in like a panic, like looking, what did I do with the child? To one point, it was so bad that I got up out of bed, my arms like this, carrying the child, and Rebecca wakes up to see me at the foot of the bed, just holding my child (laughs) like this. And she goes, she wakes up and says, what are you doing? And if this has ever happened, apparently it's never happened to any of you, but you... (laughs) You go from something that seems so logical to something that seems so absurd. I'm like, I'm holding our child. I'm just going to go to bed now. And you go back to bed. Uh, One of the weirdest was um, one time Rebecca woke up and I was was, like pushed up, like sitting in bed. And I was reaching out over her with my arm extended like this. Okay. And she wakes up and she says, what are you doing? She was startled at my arm. I was like, what are you doing? And I said... I'm receiving a bowl of porridge. (laughs) Seemed totally natural to me in the moment. Later, that seemed very strange. Okay, so if you've ever had that experience, you're kind of waking up, you're not totally awake, you're not totally asleep, you're in this like middle zone, you're like in this stupor, you're in this daze, you're like under the influence of sleep, but you're not totally asleep. And what happens in that moment or when you're dreaming, there's something that just seems so logical and so natural, but then when you wake up, you're like, okay, that was really silly, that, that's like absurd that I would think that. But there's this kind of in-between phase where you're in like a daze and, and everything seems like it fits. And I wonder if... This is actually not an uncommon phenomenon in life. So I wonder if there's things that kind of, we kind of get in the slipstream of a certain reality. And it just seems totally natural. It seems totally logical. And, And it almost takes someone to just grab us by the shoulders and just shake us back to reality for us to realize, okay, wait, that that is crazy. That, that is absurd. Why was I thinking that was my reality? There's a such more greater, more real truth that I'm living in. What if there are things that can kind of lull us to sleep, kind of put us in a daze or a stupor, and we need someone to grab us by the shoulders and to wake us up? There's a passage we're going to look at this morning 
that is maybe one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. It's certainly in the top five, probably. And it's one of those chapters that if we let it, one of those sections, one of those collection of verses that if we let it, it will grab us by the shoulders. It will wake us up to a truth, to a greater, a whole greater reality, a greater paradigm where we realize, okay, I've been lulled to sleep in this daze and this stupor. It will grab us by the shoulders and wake us up. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 18. If you have your booklet, you can turn to part four, the uh, sermon guide. It's called Mobilized. If you turn to part four, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. Now, let me just give you some context before we jump into this passage. If you were to read the preceding passages, you will see that Jesus has called his disciples together. If you're reading this in your physical Bible or at a Bible app, you would see these are the last verses in the book of Matthew. So here's what that means. This is right before Jesus goes back to heaven. He's already died on the cross. He's already done all the miracles that he did. He died on the cross. He's already risen again from the dead. He's appeared to many of them. And these are, we're looking at his, really his final words. And right before he says these words, he gathers, he says to his disciples, he says, I want to meet you up on top of this hill. Now, when we read that he gathered his disciples, we know that there is a, we've been talking about this for the last couple weeks, there's a Greek word that we usually translate into the English word disciple. What is that Greek word? Mathetes. Let's say that one more time together. Mathetes. It's this word that is, is commonly used to refer to these followers of Jesus. And we've been talking about this for the last couple weeks. A mathetes was not uncommon at that time period. A mathetes was this type of follower that followed after a teacher or a rabbi, and they were saying this. They weren't just simply saying, I want you to, to coach me or mentor me. They were really spending their lives following this person saying, I want to be just like you. And so Jesus turned to his mathetes and said, okay, if you want to be like me, then here's the situation. I am going to be laying my life down for the world. I'm sacrificing my life. If that's what you want, come on and follow me. In fact, a couple decades later, these mathetes, after Jesus went back to heaven, a couple decades later, these mathetes began to be known as Christians, which is obviously a very familiar word to us, but it's actually a very appropriate word for someone, a mathetes of Jesus. They're saying, I want to be just like Christ, and so they began to be called Christians because they're like Christ. And what we saw about, as we've been studying this idea of mathetes, is it is an all-or-nothing all situation. So on, over the course of these last couple weeks, we've been saying, okay, there's three attributes of a mathetes. A mathetes is rescued, a mathetes is awestruck, and a mathetes is mobilized. That's what we're looking at this morning. Jesus gathers his mathetes around. They're on top of this hill, and this is what Jesus says to them. Verse 18. <clears throat> and when Jesus came, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now that's quite an opening. It's pretty rare for Jesus to just show his credentials like that. He doesn't usually do that like that. He doesn't usually just remind them exactly 
who he is. Okay, I want you to imagine that you sit down to coffee with a friend, you're meeting, you're at Starbucks there, and you're talking, and all of a sudden, your friend pauses and goes, you know I'm your friend, right? Okay, now what are you starting to think is about to come next? Okay, this isn't going to be good. Okay, let's say you get a phone call, and someone says, are you sitting down? You know it's going to be big. It could be really, really good. It could be really, really bad, okay? Let's say you're, uh, you've got the family over at your parents' house, and your mother says, as your mother, okay, you know, it's whatever's going to be next. It's the law, okay? It's just the law of that house, whatever comes next. All right, I want you to think of what Jesus says as he's starting whatever he's going to say next. This is what he says, all authority on earth and heaven has been given to me. He just shows them his credentials. Very rare move for Jesus. He's saying all authority on earth. Think about what he's saying. He's saying that means there's no ruler that has more authority than I do. Not the Caesar of Rome. Not the local king of Israel. Not some emperor in some distant land or some chief of some tribe. He's saying all authority on earth, absolute authority is on earth, has been given to me by God. He's saying, I rule everything. He's saying, I don't just rule everything on earth. He says, I rule everything on heaven, in heaven and on earth. He's saying, I am the absolute ruler of everything. That means not just over the human race, over plants, over animals. He's essentially saying, every particle in the universe, every scientific law, everything that's ever been made, every galaxy, every angel in heaven, everything in existence has been placed under my authority, under my command. That's how he starts. What is he about to say? Let's look what he says next. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, what's that word behind disciples? Mathetes. Go, therefore, and make mathetes of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want you to see what he says. He shows them his his credentials. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth, every particle has to obey my command. He says, Do you notice he says, go, therefore? He says, basically, he's linking these two statements. Therefore, on that authority, he says, I give you these commands. He looks at his mathetes and he says, really, two commands. He says, go and make mathetes. He looks at his mathetes and says, here's your command. These are Jesus' final words. After this, it's the end of the book of Matthew. After this, he goes back to heaven. This is his final words. He says, I have all authority and standing on that authority, therefore I give you this command, go. Go out intentionally. Make the effort proactively. Go is a command. Go out and make mathetes. He says, if you're mathetes, he's looking at, he's looking them in the eyes. Can you imagine the intensity in his eyes as they're looking? They're looking at the risen Jesus who defeated death and he's saying, I have all authority in this universe. Go make disciples. That is your command. 
Go, you are a mathetase, your calling is to go and make mathetase. And then he gives them two ways to do that. So he gives them these commands, go and make mathetase. Then he gives them two ways. The first thing he says, baptizing them. And then the second thing he says is teaching them. Baptizing them. This is the first thing he says. As you go out, be baptizing them. What is that? That means that when, when a, what, what Christians have done throughout history is at that point when a believer says, I believe that Jesus died on the cross he took all of my sin and shame. He took my past and he took it on him on the cross and his death was paying for all of my sin. He died and was buried and all of my sin was buried with him. And he rose again from the dead, defeating my sin, paying for my past and defeating death in the same way I will rise again from the dead and I will be in heaven with Jesus when I die. And so when a believer says that I believe that Jesus has done that on my behalf, then what Christians have done through the millennia is that they've done a symbol, an ancient symbol called baptism, where someone who's, who's confessed their faith in Jesus gets placed under the water and they're getting placed under the water signifying it's, it's a metaphor for the fact that just like their past was buried with Jesus, they go under the water. But then they come out of the water because Jesus rose again from the dead, having defeated all their sin. And in the same way, that person comes out of the water as a symbol that they have brand new life. It's like they've been born again. And so Christians throughout the centuries have done that when they've said, yes, I put my faith in Jesus. What the in, what's happening inwardly, they express outwardly through this symbol of baptism. So Jesus says, okay, go and make mathetes. There's two ways you're going to do that. The first is go baptize them. As they're confessing their faith in Jesus, go baptize them. And then he says the second thing is teach them. Teach them all the things that I taught you. He says, you remember that's that parable that I taught you, Jesus says, where there's a prodigal son, runs away from the father, and he's just, his life is falling apart, and he has no options but to return to the father, and he doesn't know, man, is, is he even going to accept me back? And, and he says, maybe if I grovel at his feet, he's expecting the, to come back, and the father's going to be standing there like this. But Jesus says, that's not how the story goes. He says, here's the story. He says, the father is waiting. He's leaning forward, looking at every dot on the horizon. Is that my son who's coming to return? He says, that's how the father is. He says, teach them that. He says, you remember how I taught you about the good shepherd? He says, when there's one broken and lost sheep, he says, the good shepherd will leave to go find that one and bring him, put him over his shoulders and bring him back. He says, that's how God is, is teaching that. He says, you remember how I taught you how finding the truth of who God is is like walking across a field and stumbling upon an incredible treasure and then you sell everything you have to buy the field to get the treasure. He says, that's what God's like. He's the most unimaginable treasure, the most unimaginable glory to be in relationship with your creator. He says, there's nothing, nothing that can compare to that. He says, teach them that. He says, go and make disciples. Those are the commands. And he says, there's two ways to do that. He says, baptize them and teach them. Now, I want you to see this formula here because it's very interesting. He looks at his mathetes and he says, go and make mathetes. What is he doing? He's mobilizing them. He says, go and make more mathetes. And he says, and this is what it looks like to make a mathetes. They get baptized. What's happening? They're expressing the fact that they've been rescued. He says, get them rescued, he says, and then 
teach them all that I've taught. Stir up that awe of who God is and how amazing God is so that their lives are dominated by their worship of God. He says, see that they're rescued. See that they're awestruck. And then what do you think comes next with those mathetes? They're mobilized. Now you go, get, go make mathetes. See that they're rescued. See that they're awestruck. See that they're mobilized. See, what he's saying is he's calling them. He says, Mathetes, here is your mission. Your mission is to go make more Mathetes. That's what he's saying here. The first blank inside your booklet is this. It's going to be up here on the screens. It says, every Mathetes is on mission. Every Mathetes. In other words, Christian, you have a purpose. You have a goal, you have a calling, you have a mission that you're on. If you're a mathetes, if you're saying, Jesus, I'm following you, I want to be like you, he's saying, okay, I'm placing you on mission. You have a calling that you're supposed to get after, and you are called to make mathetes. Let me ask you this question. We wear um, many hats, each of us. Some of you, if you're here, a men, you might be wearing different hats. You might say, okay, I'm a businessman, or I'm a firefighter in law enforcement, I'm military, or I, I work for a company, I'm a business owner, you, may, you wear different hats. Maybe another hat you say is, I'm a husband, I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a father, I'm a friend. You, you say, I'm a provider. But then there's this hat called mathetes that you wear. Now let me ask you this question. Which is first? Ladies, you, you wear different hats too. One, one hat, you might be saying, well, I, I work out, I'm an executive, I, I'm a teacher, I, I'm, I'm a homemaker. I'd say, I, I'm a mother, I, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, a sister, I'm a friend, and I'm a mathetes. Let me ask this question, which is first? I don't know if you remember what we read uh, a couple weeks back. We read, and especially in our devotions as we're going through the booklet, there's this one crazy verse where Jesus says, if you want to be my mathetes, if, he says, you're going to have to hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even your own self. It's just the most bizarre statement. You're saying, wait, Jesus said that? I thought Jesus was the one who said the most important thing you could do is love God and love others. What in the world is Jesus talking about? He's using hyperbole, exaggeration to get, up, get across this point. He's saying, if you want to be my mathetes, he's saying, your allegiance to me has to be so strong that it makes all other allegiances that you have in your life pale in comparison. Church, here's what he's saying. Christian, here's what he's saying. The first hat you wear is a mathetes, your calling. You have a calling on your life. You realize that it's not like this. There's not like regular Christians and then there's like, you know, like really super Christians and then you've got like missionaries are way up there. It's not like that. It's one group, mathetes. And every one of them is a missionary. You wake up tomorrow and you're going to get out of bed and you're going to get breakfast ready and you're going to get, maybe you're going to get your kids ready to go to work, to school, and then you're going to be off to work and you've got people going in different directions and you're going to get to work and maybe you're checking your email or you've got all these tasks to do and then you've got meetings to set up and you've got stress and you come home and you've got bills to pay and kids' homework to do and soccer practice to get to and you have all these things and in the midst of that you realize you have one 
fundamental foundational calling in the midst of that you are a missionary in every single segment you go to. If you are a mathetase, you are called on mission. Feel the intensity of Jesus, the Son of God, looking you in the eyes and saying, I have authority over every particle in the universe, and I am calling you, if you are my mathetase, here is my parting words to you. Go and make mathetase. You are a missionary in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school. You are a missionary with your friends and your extended family. You are, you are a missionary in the place that you work. You are a missionary with people that you are connected with on social media. You are first and foremost, your calling is a missionary. Every mathetase is on mission. In fact, think of it like this. There is one reason that your Savior, Jesus, has left you on this planet. It's to go and see that other people are rescued in his name. Second blank in your booklet says this. We have been rescued to rescue Do you realize that this is your calling? You've been rescued. He said in the second week of our devotions, we're looking in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how we were dead in our transgressions, but he made us alive. We were like spiritual corpses, but he makes us alive. And you know what it says at the end of that? He says, and I have brought you, because I've got a plan. You You are my workmanship, and I have things I want to do through you. You have been rescued to rescue. That's why you're on this planet. Well, now, what are, you, what are you saying, man? I, that sounds so intense. Are you saying I have to stop everything I'm doing, interrupt my life? No, it can be something very, very simple. Maybe it's just a realization, a new lens through which you see your life. In fact, I want you to see the rest of Augie and Sheila's story. Check out the rest of this video. When I was first trying to interest people in coming to church, there was that roadblock of embarrassment or like, what are they going to say? But I think the way I got over the hump is like, what the heck? I know this is right. I know that it could be the biggest step in their life. I know their lives can change. So what? I'll take the embarrassment. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Another thing that happened, and and it isn't like I am uh, angst-free in terms of uh, talking about church or coming to church, but the mugs did help me this year. They, they were a, a great icebreaker for me. Uh, handed in the mug, oh man, you didn't expect a gift, and, and honestly I wasn't going to give them a gift, but the bottom line is, is I got to tell them that our, our church is doing this, and I'd love to have you there. There's a little invitation in there, a piece of candy or something else, but um, there are other icebreakers that occur naturally. When you get to the end of your life, you will be looking back and saying, Wow, are my accomplishments totally in the job I did for a corporation or for a company? I was very pleasantly surprised the first couple times that I bit my tongue and said, I'm gonna do this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ask somebody to church in the middle of the week, even if they have no interest or don't even show one iota of a desire to go to church or be involved spiritually. 
And I had a couple misses, but boy, when I had a couple positives, when I had a couple hits, it just showed me that there was more to my life than my job. If there's anybody that's going through something that I went through and I want them to avoid that edge of the cliff that they're going at at about 120 miles an hour, I, I, I sit down with them if I can and I explain to them that I discovered something and before you get to a place where you're going to have to suffer, try this because it works. The first time we walked into West Pines, in the bulletin there was one sentence that said there's a missions trip and it was to Guatemala. That's all it said. And um, I was sick at the time, but I knew in my heart that I was supposed to go on this trip. And so I said to my husband later, I think I'm supposed to go. And he said, well, let's pray about it. And the next Sunday, it was confirmed to us that I was supposed to go. She said, we've been praying and we need two adult females to chaperone two high school students. So I was, I was in. I knew that God had a purpose for me to be there and it went beyond um, just chaperoning a student or, or taking pictures or anything else. I knew it was the beginning of something. I knew he had a reason and so I just trusted him. Being sick or whatever it was, I signed up for it and I went on that first trip to Guatemala. So since my first trip to Guatemala, I knew when I was there, there were a lot of advocates for compassion that were on this trip when we were there. And it was the next step for me that God was calling me to become an advocate for compassion. I thought that was kind of crazy because I didn't sponsor a child for compassion. So that would be the first step to sponsor a child. And at some point we did um, sponsor a little girl and um, there in Guatemala, and then I became an advocate for compassion. And by becoming an advocate, um, the representative for West Pines for, for compassion, then um, we've had the opportunity for other people to become sponsors, not just in Guatemala, but throughout the world. Best way to be mobilized, it sounds silly, but it's really putting one foot in front of the other. It really is taking that first step, and it might seem like a small step, but it's taking the first step. For me, it was the one line that said, we're going to Guatemala, and saying, I'll go. It was one step, and that's where I began. You may not be a sheriff. You may not be an extrovert. You may not, you might not be gregarious. You, you may just be one of those people that's not outgoing and, and would have a problem anxiety-wise with sharing what you know to be true. So if you have to look at it another way, mobilize yourself in obedience to God because He asks you to do that. Your first step, get plugged in, join a team, join a community group. God will use that group in your life to help you know what your next steps are. Church, before we go any further, I just want to be really, really 
brutally honest. There's, uh, we've been calling it as a, a leadership, as a way to just talk through this concept. There, there's a church game. And it starts by something lurking in the hearts of leadership. And I'm not talking about any particular ministry. I'm not talking about anything. But it starts in the hearts of leadership when it becomes about success. Successful ministry careers or successful like a big church or whatever. And then there's something that may be stirred up in the hearts of those who go to the church. And, they, and what's maybe stirring up in their hearts is, I just want a comfortable, predictable uh, Christianity of faith. I, I, I want you to maybe convict me a little bit, but not too much. You don't get too crazy and too dangerous. And what forms is this, it can be this real kind of parasitic, symbiotic relationship where there, there's a very comfortable Ministry is put together with all the ministry preferences and all the program preferences and, and just this the way that the certain group likes and this the way the certain group's like, oh, you want this ministry? We'll do this. And then, and then every now and then that the leadership will come back to the church and say, okay, guys, you know, if we want to keep the church going, then you know, we need some more volunteers around here and we need you to you know, give a little bit more and we need some more of your time and we need some more from you. And okay, all right, we'll do that. And there's this kind of symbiotic relationship. And you know what that is? It's a church game. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, you've been rescued and there's other people in the water and they're lost. And I've left you on this planet to pull them out. It's not a game. There's one moment that I think may be one of the most important moments in the history of our church. It was one of our first trips to Haiti. And we had gone down there. We were bringing, it was not too long after the earthquake, we were bringing support to this orphanage and to these, these orphans and we bring medical supplies. And this mother came up and she had her two children with her and she had dressed them up. She had done the little girl's hair and put the little boy she was carrying in these little slacks. And it was obvious that she had borrowed these clothes from around because they're unusually nice. And she shows up uh, at this orphanage and she's got her kids in her hand. And we look at this little boy and he seems like he's barely alive. He's so dehydrated and he's so starving, it just seems like he's barely alive. And one of our paramedics jumps in and takes the little boy, and then they, we get some of the, the formula that a hospital had donated that we take, took down there, and we poured it in this little boy's mouth, and it was just like he went, <gasps> like this. It was like they poured life down his throat. And they began pulling this woman aside, and I saw one of the local Haitian pastors and the leader of this orphanage talking with him. And a few minutes later, I see the pastor walk away and walk aside. In a rare moment, I saw a Haitian pastor break down into tears. And I walked up, and I said, asked him what was going on, and he explained to me that this woman was in such bad, bad shape, she could not take care of her children anymore, and she had brought her children to surrender them to the orphanage because she could no longer take care of her children. And we see a mom sitting in a chair with papers in front of her, holding the hand of her little girl with a sullen face. And the pastor is looking me right in the eye, and he's telling me, he's saying what it's like to be a, a church in Haiti and what's at stake. And he'll never forget what he said. He looked me in the eye and he said, We're not playing. And, church, I think that was a strategic moment for us when we realized this isn't a game, this is, we're not just playing church. 
This is a world that is lost. It's our neighbors who are facing an eternity away from God. And Jesus has left this on the planet and he's saying, I am with all authority looking at you and I'm telling you, go into this world and rescue. Missionary pioneer by the name of Hudson Taylor, he went in the mid-1900s, he, he goes into China at a time when there's almost no one preaching the gospel there and he tells the story about how he was on this riverboat and he was sharing with this Chinese man. And he was, he was sharing with him about, about Jesus, and the man was struggling to, to says, man, this is such a paradigm shift. He wasn't sure where he's at, and night after night he shared with him, and, and he said, I'm just not sure. And so they just parted for the evening. He goes back to his quarters, and as Hudson Taylor's walking into his quarter, he hears a splash. And he rushes back up to the deck, and, and, he, and he sees a bunch of people pointing in the water. The man had fallen into the river. And so Hudson Taylor's urgent, and he's thinking about this man, about his soul, uncertainty of his soul, and he looks in the water, and he sees the man's not coming out, and he doesn't know what else to do. The boat's still moving, so he dives into the water. And he's swimming around, and he's swimming down in the murky river. He can't find the man, and he doesn't know what to do. It's every second that's ticking by. He says, okay, we might lose this guy, and he sees some fishermen. And he says, please, please come over. There's a man, he's, he's down here. Please, if you drop your nets, we can bring him up, we can save him. And he said their exact words were, no, that's inconvenient for us. And he was shocked. He says, please come over. They're like, oh, well, how much will you pay us? He says, I'll pay you anything. I'll pay you everything that I have. Please, there's a man down here. And he says that they slowly, after they negotiated for a few minutes of price, he's pleading with them. They row over and they drop down their nets. And sure enough, they pull up his body, the man's unconscious, and they, they rush over to the side, and Hudson Taylor, with some medical experience, tries to resuscitate this man. And he dies. And he said, I was so enraged. And then God told me something. He said that I'll never forget. He said, do we have the same attitude to those who are spiritually drowning. We who have been called to be fishers of men. Church, this is, this is your calling. You've been sent out. You're a missionary. You're not just an average, just trying to make it through the day kind of Christian. You are a, if you are a mathetist, you are on mission. If you've been rescued, it's to rescue others. You've been sent out on this mission. Do you realize you've been given the most glorious calling on planet Earth? Do you realize you have a purpose? Do you realize there's people all the time that they're saying, why am I on this planet? They're 18 or they're 28 or they're 48 or 58 or 78. And they're like, why am I even on this planet? And Jesus said, he looked into our eyes and he said, Mathetes, you are here to make more Mathetes. That's your purpose. That's your calling. Everything else stems from that. That's your incredible calling. Wow, it just seems too big. It just seems too much. How are we going to make a dent? Well, it's the same Jesus who said, I have authority over everything on this planet. It's the same Jesus that at the end said, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Now, church, what if we said, Jesus, we don't know how, but, but right here, right now, in this time, in this place, we are going to answer your call and figure out what it looks like to be Mathetes who are sent out on mission. 
What if we said, okay, you know what? No longer is, is church successful based on it, does it meet my needs or how big is the church? No, the success of the church is if we all of a sudden disappeared, would the city, would the community, would anyone even really notice? What if we said, you know what? No, what we want to become is one of those communities that are, we're, we're not just entering into the slipstream of the rest of our culture. No, we're going to wake each other up from the stupor that we're in and say, no, there's a greater reality. We're, we're not just going to raise our kids the way the whole world raises their kids or just do the same things that the whole world does. No, we're going to stir each other up. We're going to be a community that wakes each other up and says, no, we're called to be mathetes. This world is going to be alien and strange sometimes, but we're going to do things different because we're following after Jesus, and he's called each one of us to a great calling. Church, what, what, if, what if there was not just a, a couple mission trips a year, and we, we've been blessed, we've had the, the privilege of building stoves and houses in Guatemala and had the opportunity to build bathhouses at orphanages and in Haiti and drill wells in, in Burkina Faso, but what if God so stirred us up that almost constantly there were teams leaving West Pines, almost constantly. People saying, you know what, I'm gonna, I've got a little vacation time here. This is a great opportunity I can get. I'm going to take my teenagers with me because I don't want them to leave high school without experiencing what it's like to be making mathetes all around the world just like Jesus called us to. What if there was such a hunger for this calling that Jesus has placed on our lives? What if there were so many people saying, I'm not just called to a mission trip. I'm coming back from a mission trip and realize God's put a call on my life to serve permanently in a foreign mission field. What if there are people that are coming out of high school and, and college or mid-career changing courses or at the end of their career saying, God is calling me to the mission field. What if as a church that happens so often that we actually had to create a program to help people take the next steps to go out on the mission field? What if we said, no, right now there are children that have been pulled out of their homes. They're in shelters right now, right here in Dade and Broward County. And we cannot rest while there's children in shelters and we have empty rooms. We have foster parents raising up, and those who can't are coming around them, supporting them. What if we said we can't rest because there are single moms in our community that are working three jobs and raising kids and barely scraping by and surviving? We're not going to rest until we come around them. What if, we, what if as a church we said, Jesus, there's a greater calling on our life. There are, we look at today and we look at the, the kids and the students and what they're facing today. And we're not going to rest until we address that and we bring them and help them understand who the almighty God who wants to rescue them and send them off on a mission. What if we as a church said, Jesus, we're going to answer that call no matter the cost and we're going to be a community that says, okay, together, let's figure this out. Let's become mathetes. It's an all or nothing situation, Jesus. Like you said, it's, we will renounce all that we own and hold it up to you and say, God, our lives are completely expendable. You guide us. I want to share with you one more story of someone saved while drowning. I, I just want to close with this. There's a man by the name of John Harper. Actually, here's a picture of him. He was, he's an evangelist. His name is John Harper. He lived in Scotland. And he got a call to, sh to do a revival in Chicago. And so he, he took his, his daughter, his wife had, had passed away. He takes his daughter and, and they have to take a ship over to sail to Chicago to do these revival, this revival series. And, and um, so they get on the ship, it's a brand new ship, a big ship. And it was known throughout the world to be, they thought, unsinkable. He boards the Titanic with his daughter and on that fateful night when it struck an iceberg and the inhabitants 
on the, the people on the Titanic start to realize the gravity of the situation. There start, there's a mad dash for the lifeboats. And he takes his daughter, gets to a lifeboat, and he places his daughter on the lifeboat and looks her in the eyes for the last time. And then he heads up the deck because he wants to spend his final hours preaching the gospel to souls that are condemned to a watery grave. And he starts frantically preaching the gospel to any who pass by. Even one account said a man was walking by and he said, Sir, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you know you're saved? He says, I don't know. And he says, take my life preserver. You need it more than I do. And he stands on the bow of the boat and he's preaching to anyone who will hear him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And slowly the ship goes down and he finds himself in the water. And there's accounts, there's only a few people that were floating in the water that survived. But from their accounts, this man, John Harper, in his final moments is swimming through the freezing Arctic water from person to person, pleading with them to turn to Jesus. And one man put it like this. He wrote it down. He said, I am a survivor of the Titanic. And when I was drifting alone on a spar that awful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I am not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And the waves bore him away. But strange to say, they brought him back a little later and he said, are you saved now? No, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. And he said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And shortly after he went down. And there alone in the night and with two miles of water under me, I believed. I am John Harper's last convert. Christian, that's your calling. Follower of Christ, that, that's your mission. That's why you're on this planet. If you've been rescued, it's to rescue. And church, let's come together and say to Jesus, with everything we've got, we'll answer that call. And watch what you'll do through us. Maybe you're here and you say, I'm the one that's drowning. I'm the one that's in the water. I need to be saved this morning. Please, I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Is that you? feel like you're in the water, you feel like you're drowning, then maybe pray this prayer between you and God this morning, asking him to rescue you. Pray this prayer between you and God. Jesus, thank you for how you saved me. Thank you, God, that you've rescued me. Thank you that even though I was drowning, you came and you reached down. Thank you for saving me. Thank you that I know I have an eternity with you when I die. 
If you prayed that prayer, I just want to pray over you. If you prayed that prayer, let me pray for you. Jesus, I pray for all those who are calling out to you, wanting to be rescued this morning. Jesus, I pray that you would strengthen their faith. Jesus, I pray that you would help them to know that they're called to an incredible calling, an incredible mission. And Jesus, we pray that you would use our church to do mighty things in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you'd like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.